Well, good morning, everyone. How many of you, when looking outside this morning, were excited when they saw all that lovely white stuff just scattered everywhere? Probably not many of us. If there were kids here, I'm sure many of them would have been tremendously excited. And I think we can all remember when we would all would get excited when snow came, if we grew up in areas that it snowed anyway. Uh, and we got excited for the snow because snow was the first sign that Christmas is coming. And we all love Christmas, and one of the reasons I think younger kids love Christmas is because they anticipate presents, right? We all know how time just slowed down as the days were passing by. It's almost here. It's, oh, can it get here any sooner? Next thing you know, um, you're an adult and you're not worried about those things anyway. Holidays just bring stress. But when we were younger, Christmas was a, a great time of anticipation, looking ahead to a great thing that is coming. And that's kind of the theme of the passage we're going to be looking at this morning. We're going to be in Romans chapter 8, reading verses 18 through 30. And I don't usually title my messages just because I'm not creative enough to come up with them. However, there is a title for this one that I think is appropriate. The title is Groaning for Glory. Groaning for Glory. So Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 30. We'll uh, read, pray, and we will get on with it. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we also ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we eagerly wait for it. And in the same way, the Spirit also helps in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time. Our Father, we are thankful for your word, for the promises contained within it. We're thankful that as we 
groan in this life. It is in anticipation to something greater that is ahead of us. We're thankful for the many promises that you've given us and the hope that we have, all because of what Jesus has done. I pray that you bless this time, this reading of your word and our study of it this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, as you can tell in this passage, you can probably figure out why I named it as such. There are a lot of groanings going on. We have the groaning of creation. We have the groaning of us. And we also have the groaning of the Spirit, all in anticipation of something that is coming. The glory that is to be revealed in us. The Apostle Paul in verse 18 says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory, with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So we have two contrasting things. We have sufferings and glory. Sufferings and glory. One that's present, one that we look ahead to. We experience present sufferings. The Bible doesn't shy away from this reality. Uh, there are many who may get the idea that, oh, once you come to faith in Christ, once you become a Christian, everything just finally becomes right, right? Uh, well, certainly things are placed in order. We are made spiritually right with God. Those things are right, but it doesn't mean that life gets any easier necessarily. It doesn't mean that there aren't any sufferings that come with it. In fact, the Bible anticipates suffering for those who are in Christ. The Apostle Paul was no stranger to this kind of suffering. Uh, he even boasts about his suffering, the things that he went through for the sake of Christ. He says, in far more labors, far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a, a night and a day I've spent in the deep, I've, all, I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and in exposure. Often, apart from a su a such external things, there's the daily pressure on me of concern for the churches. So no stranger of suffering. And though we might not have gone through what the Apostle Paul has gone through, I know that there are people in this room who also are not strangers of suffering either. We all undergo the various sufferings of this life, the sufferings of uh, living in a fallen creation, the sufferings that come with sin, both our own sin and the sin of those around us. So we are not strangers to this suffering. However, this suffering is not without purpose. This suffering is actually uh, building up to something. It's anticipating something, a glory that is going to be revealed. The Apostle Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time, and we had just gone through that great list of sufferings, are not worthy to, be, to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The glory that Paul anticipates, the glory that we look forward to, 
it's going to make the sufferings in this life look like nothing. Paul says they're not even worthy of comparison. So we can endure these sufferings. Why is it that we can endure these things in this uh, present life? Because they will ultimately pale in comparison to the glory that will result from them. We continue reading in verse 19, and this is the, the first groaning we find in this section, the groaning of creation, the anxious longing of creation. For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pain of childbirth until now. So Paul tells us that just as we await, this creation itself is anticipating a coming glory. Because creation is not the way that it was. We don't need to look very long and hard to see that there are things in this world, in creation itself, that are broken. Things that don't work the way that they should. Uh, disease, sickness, and death. This is a result of the curse of sin that God has placed on creation. We could say that this section right here is Paul's inspired commentary on what we read in Genesis. Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 19, uh, God says to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles that shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground. Cursed is the ground because of you. Remember what creation was, a lush garden. Sure, there was going to be work involved. Sure, there was going to be cultivating the land. But it was not the work that we see that comes with a cursed ground that bears weeds and thorns and thistles and all these other nasty things that get in the way of us accomplishing our purposes. Isaiah speaks of the earth. Uh, Isaiah 24, you don't have to turn there, I'll read it. 24 verses 4 through 6, Isaiah says that the earth mourns and withers, the world fades and withers, the exalted of the people of the earth fade away. The earth is also polluted by its inhabitants, for they transgressed laws, violated statutes, broke the everlasting covenant, therefore a curse devours the earth. And those who live in it are held guilty. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are burned and there are few men uh, left. Creation is not as it should be. It's not as it was. However, it anticipates a coming glory. We, as God's image bearers, have been placed here to subject creation around us to be God's image bearers, and yet we have failed at this task. We have been unable to accomplish this task in subduing the earth. Uh, the author of Hebrews uh, says, uh, for he did not subject to the angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking, but one has testified somewhere saying, what is man that you remember him or the son of man that you are concerned about him? 
You've made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor. You have appointed him over all the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection to his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, to mankind, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we are not yet, uh, we do not yet see all things subjected to him. Creation is out of our control, right? Uh, it is not subject to us. And this has to do with that curse that came upon the ground. And yet creation itself is anticipating a redemption. Uh, for the anxious longing of creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God, a redemption that is completely intertwined in our own redemption. God, in restoring all things, is not just restoring us to the way that we were, but all things, including all of creation. So when creation itself, uh, personified here, is anticipating the glory of the children of God, eagerly waiting the revealing of the sons of God. And who are the sons of God? Well, that is those who have trusted in the Lord Jesus. We'll uh, discuss this sonship uh, in, in just a few moments. Because in the revealing of the sons of God, creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the sons of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth until now. So creation, uh, picture creation uh, as, as a woman anticipating this revealing of the sons of God, right? The sons of God are, are coming, but uh, as any woman who's given birth knows that there's a tremendous amount of pain that leads up to the giving of birth, right? Uh, a huge amount of pain. Now, not to, uh, you know, my, I, I don't know it. The only pain I experienced is my wife crushing my hand as she does it. Uh, but uh, I've seen it. I know you ladies are in pain as that happens. Uh, however, that groaning is in anticipation of a child that is going to be born. And creation itself is groaning in a similar way, awaiting the redemption of God's own children. Childbirth comes with a great deal of suffering, but uh, something that mothers will say is that suffering is worth it in light of the child that comes as a result, right? Uh, it, it, it's amazing how the pain almost immediately leaves the face of the mother once they see that child for the first time. Uh, what, a, what an incredible thing. And creation itself and its redemption is awaiting that. Interestingly enough, uh, those of us who have had children, we know the buildup to the children. It's kind of like Christmas morning, right? Uh, the pregnancy seems like it's taking forever. Everything's moving in slow motion. Then, you know, you start to see the signs. You know, we see snow on the ground. That means Christmas is coming. We see the baby bump. Okay, baby's coming. Water breaks. So we're in the hospital. And all of a sudden, we've got a baby. And it doesn't take long before uh, we've almost completely forgotten what life is like before that child comes along. Things are so drastically changed, and I think uh, because things are so much drastically better. And this, this uh, image kind of came into my mind as I thought of what Paul said, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Just as I don't even know what life was like before having children. It's completely gone from my mind. All I know is kids at this point. Uh, when we are there in glory, the sufferings 
that built up to it. It's going to be so small, so insignificant in our mind. It's going to be like that, just completely shut away from our minds, completely foreign to it. And perhaps that's one of the reasons Paul draws on this imagery of childbirth. And we know that creation itself will be set free as well as the children of God are revealed. The curse that's been placed on creation will be reversed. Creation will not ultimately be annihilated. Yes, we know there's going to be a a death that creation suffers, just as we ourselves experience a death. But that death is not an annihilation that doesn't just go poof and disappear forever. But there's going to be a restoration. There's going to be a transformation. There's going to be a new heavens and a new earth, as we read in Isaiah, as we read in Revelation, Revelation 21, we all know this, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. So, the groaning of creation, first groaning, second groaning comes from us. We continue reading uh, in verse, uh, verse 23 of Romans chapter 8, And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting our adoption as sons, the redemption of the body. For in hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes in what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we eagerly wait for it. So we groan as we await this adoption as sons, as we, uh, as we await this uh, restoration of our, our frail and sinful flesh. Now, something to, to recognize, earlier on in the chapter, it, it talks of us as being adopted, and this talks uh, as if we're anticipating something. And what we see here is uh, that reality of so much of salvation, you know, there's present aspects of it, but there's aspects that we still await. The already but not yet. You've probably heard that phrase, the already but not yet. And that's true of adoption too. There's an already aspect to it. The uh, Earlier on in this chapter, in, uh, in verse 14, Paul tells us, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. If you're being led by the Spirit, you are a son of God. You've been adopted. You are his child. If you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can say, God is my father. I am his child. He has adopted me. Uh, We have been given the Holy Spirit. You have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've you've received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. If you call to God as your father, well, what's that tell us? God has done a work in giving us the spirit of adoption. And the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. So we are adopted as children of God. We belong to him. However, we don't look like it quite yet, do we? Um, now, we are children of God if we have believed, but you wouldn't be able to tell by looking at us on the outside uh, because there are still problems, right? We await the redemption of the body, don't we? Uh, that's something that is coming. We're continually reminded by our own bodies that they aren't the way that they should be. 
Now, the past couple weeks, uh, oh man, I've been dealing with just this horrible back pain, and it got so much worse after sleeping on my, my in-law's spare bedroom uh, just this last weekend. But that's my body telling me that, hey, there's something wrong here, right? And we all have those reminders that there's something wrong here. Things aren't yet the way they are going to be. Things aren't the way that they should be, right? Uh, and that's what we are, uh, you know, our bodies are continually reminding us of this. We're subject to sin. We're subject to pain, disease. We're subject to death. Our bodies are breaking down. They're not going to last forever. As Moses says, as for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone and we fly away. James similarly tells us, you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while, then vanishes away. This present body, this present life is not our eternal home. It's not our eternal dwelling place. And we anticipate something better. We know that there is something better. We anticipate this new heavenly body. At death, we will be separated from our bodies for a time, but that's not what eternity looks like, right? The, the popular image of heaven is that, oh, we're away from our bodies and we just get to float around like clouds for the rest of eternity. No, actually, uh, human beings were created as body, soul, and spirit. There's a physical aspect to us that is essential to what it is to be a human being, and we will live in our bodies not these ones, are are restored bodies for eternity. And that is what we are awaiting, this eternal home, this eternal dwelling place. The Apostle Paul in uh, 2 Corinthians says that, for we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house that is not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house, so the one we're in now, we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, insomuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. So we're groaning, awaiting this, this redemption of the body that we look forward to, this final and complete adopted as sons where we will look exactly as we already are, right? Uh, we know that we're going to live. Again, we know that we're going to experience this ultimately because of Jesus' resurrection on the cross. We can anticipate this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we, the Apostle Paul, talking to the Corinthians, says, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how is it that some of you say there's no resurrection from the dead? So he's going after this uh, group of people who are saying, oh, there's no such thing as a resurrection. And Greek culture, they didn't want a resurrection. That was Physical matter is bad in, in their minds. Creation is evil. Creation needs to be done away with. Where in the biblical worldview, creation is not evil. Creation was made by God. It's corrupted, but it waits restoration. And the same goes for our own physical bodies. And Paul is saying, Christ rose from the dead. He is in his body. How is it that you can say that there will not be a resurrection from the dead? And he goes on. Now, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. 
the first fruits of those who are asleep. And this first fruits, the uh, idea behind this, and we'll talk a little bit more about it later, Paul uh, talks about how the Spirit is our first fruit, right? But the idea behind the first fruits is uh, when, this t- when uh, the harvest was ready, the harvester would go, he'd get just a small sampling of what was in the field, and he would present that as the first fruit. And that first fruit acts as two different things. One, it acts as a, a down payment, as a pledge, uh, or, or it acts as a, a down payment, right? A, a down payment saying that there's more to come, uh, or, or more, more of a pledge, a promise that there's going to be more. So that's the idea behind these first fruits, so as we await the, uh, Christ being the first fruits from the dead, God is saying that just as Christ rose from the dead, we can expect that we will raise from the dead as well. So we persevere in this hope of redemption, having already received the first fruits of the Spirit. Uh, and that's what he says in verse 23. We ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption as sons, the redemption of the body. So we know that this is coming. We know that there's a redemption of the body. We know that we'll be adopted, and we can know this because we've already been given the first installment. We've been given the Holy Spirit. Uh, and the Holy Spirit is given with the anticipation with the rest, uh, that the rest is on the way. As the book of Ephesians says, "...in Him, in Christ..." You also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. And we've looked at a couple illustrations of this. The wedding ring, that's an illustration of the husband saying, I give you this ring. And what this ring is a picture of is that I will be your husband. I'm going to come and I'm going to take you for my own. God gives us the Holy Spirit. He adopts us as sons. And when we receive the Holy Spirit, we know that we're going to receive the rest of his blessings that he has for us, his children. And it's through the Holy Spirit that we cry out to God as Father. We can know we have the Holy Spirit given within us because of the Holy Spirit at work within us, uh, in our own hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. As Galatians 4 verse 6 says, Because you are sons, God has sent forth his Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So we have groanings of creation. We have our own groanings, and that brings us to the next one who is groaning, the groaning of the Holy Spirit. Verse 26, And in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So just as creation anticipates the revealing of the sons of God, the Spirit likewise anticipates this and is at work within us on our behalf in order to bring this about. We read here that it is the Spirit who helps us in our 
weaknesses. And that's one of the reasons that the Spirit is given. In fact, the John's Gospel calls the Holy Spirit the helper or the advocate is another way that we might be able to put it. John chapter 14, 16 through 17, Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. And we see the apostles received that Holy Spirit on Pentecost, and we see that we receive that very same Spirit through faith in the gospel, through believing in the good news. And the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. And what's that say? Well, we're still weak, still weak in many ways. The previous chapter of the book of Romans, we see this weakness uh, within us, this conflict between the two natures, the sinful nature and then uh, the, the spirit within us, right? Uh, the Apostle Paul uh, says in that previous chapter, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the working out of the good is not. For the good that I want to do, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want to do. Uh, we see that there's weakness still here. But we're not alone in our weakness. Uh, we're, weak in, in, uh, we're, we're weak and we have not yet conformed our mind to the, image, to the mind of God. And as a result, one of our weaknesses is that we don't pray the way that we should. Now, we, don't pr we probably all can say we don't pray as often as we should. That's not what this is talking about. What we, do, what we don't do is we don't pray according to the will of God. Oftentimes, we're in our weakness so self-centered. We're so, you know, we want things to go our way. And things don't always go our way, do they? The way that things ought to go, the way that we ought to pray, is we should be saying, God, we want things to go your way. That's how we're taught to pray, right? One of the purposes of prayer is to seek the will of God and for us to be conformed to that will. I'm not changing God's mind by praying. God is changing my mind by praying. Just as Jesus taught, uh, we all know this. How did Jesus teach us to pray? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So that's what we should be saying. All right, God, your will be done on earth. Your will be done in my life. And we even see that this is how Jesus prays. When he is in the garden, what does he say? Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. That's what our prayers should be, but they often aren't, right? That's the weakness that's being addressed here. Uh, the problem is that we don't always know the will of God. We're not always willing to see it. As a result, we don't pray as we should. But the Spirit does. The Spirit does pray as we ought on our behalf. And that's what we read. We do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So the Spirit intercedes for us. And something you'll notice is that it's the Spirit who does this on his own. He does not do this through us. This passage been, has been abused by many to, uh, uh, well, 
advocate for many strange things. But what we see here is not a work that we do, but ultimately a work that the Spirit does. Now, the Spirit does indeed use us to pray. We do see that the Spirit works in our hearts and drives us to prayer. But the prayer that is being talked about is a prayer by the Holy Spirit to God on our behalf, not something that is necessarily done through us. The Spirit certainly does guide us in our prayers, and He certainly does bring things to mind, but that's not what the passage is talking about. The Spirit intercedes for us in groanings too deep for words. And uh, this, you know, certainly... Uh, can mean a number of things. Perhaps this means that the Spirit is communicating with the Father in a way that is so above and beyond our own ways, so above and beyond us, that there are no words that could even describe this, right? God says, my ways are above your ways. Um, Perhaps this is saying that the Spirit takes our own unspoken prayers, right? The prayers that we don't even have words for, and which we cannot even conjure the words for, and effectively communicates this to God as our intercessor. Maybe it's a mixture of the two. I'm not entirely sure what it means, but what we do know is that we do have the Spirit praying for us on our behalf, and he does this not according to our will, but according to the will of the Father. One of our problems is we don't pray according to the will of the Father. The Spirit does not have that problem. God knows our hearts, and he knows the mind of the Holy Spirit who is within our hearts. He who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he, the Spirit, intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So the Spirit sharing the one being of God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Spirit is all-knowing, and he knows what the will of God is, even for our own lives. As Paul says in Corinthians, For to us God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of a man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. So the thoughts of God, God's will for my life, right? The Spirit knows that. And the Spirit is praying to that end. So we can be encouraged that the Spirit of God is living within our hearts and is at work in praying to God on our behalf according to the will of God. Our prayers don't always get a yes answer But something that we can know is that the Spirit, who prays in complete accordance with the will of God on our behalf, will always receive that yes answer. So what a a wonderful reality. These groanings anticipating glory. And that's what brings us to these next few verses. And I know we've we've, uh, spent an entire couple sermons looking at these verses, so we won't be able to get too deep. But what we read is this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All things. Now, we know, uh, not, we know that all things are not good things. We know that all things that we experience in our life are not good. We experience sufferings, distress, tribulations, sickness, sadness, disease, death, right? The sufferings of this present time, those things are very real. We know that they're real, and we know that they're not necessarily good. But what we can know is that they are not without purpose. And what we can know 
is that God is in fact working through them in order to accomplish his purposes within us. All things work together for good to those who love God. And what is the end that they are anticipating? Well, those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, right? Isn't that what glorification ultimately is? We will look like Jesus. We will be like Jesus. In every way that we can be like Jesus, we will be like him. And all of these things are working to that end. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. There's that great word again, glorified. And I've pointed it out before, but you'll notice it's spoken in the past tense, glorified, as if it's already something that's accomplished. And the reality is, while we may not yet see it, it is such a sure thing that Paul can talk about it in this way. It is such a sure reality. The hope that we have is such a sure thing. That word hope in the Bible, especially in Paul's writings, we use it in kind of a flippant way. I, I talked about that. I look outside and I say, I hope it doesn't snow anymore and because I think it's going to snow some more. And I say it in a very begrudging way. But the Bible, when it uses the word hope, it is in anticipation of something that is real, something that is sure, but that we do not yet see. And that is the glory that awaits us. That is what we can hope for. So, how do we live in light of this glory that is coming, right? We know the, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So in light of that, that doesn't mean our sufferings are going to go away, but we can persevere in our sufferings, can't we? In fact, James says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Consider it a joy knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. When trials come along, do we take them with joy or do we take them as if these verses are not true? Because I know how I can live in my mind. Something comes along and my thought is, God, where were you when this happened? Well, the reality is, God is saying, I'm using this, you dummy, to turn you into what my son looks like. So when these challenges, when these trials come along, we can take them with joy because we know that all things work together for good. As we endure these things, we are to patiently walk in holiness, right? We should try to look like what we're going to be, right? That's, that's how we ought to live. That's what Peter says in Second Peter. According to his promise, we're looking for a new heavens and earth where, in which righteousness dwells, right? We're anticipating this glory that is to come. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote you. And then finally, as we are walking in holiness, we do so 
with our eyes on the Lord Jesus, knowing that it is not us that ultimately brings this about, but him through what he did for us, dying in our place, rising from the dead, now seated at the right hand of the Father, acting as our intercessor. He sent the Holy Spirit to indwell us, to uh, intercede for us, to continue to conform us to his own image. Hebrews says, Therefore, since we have a great cloud of witness surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Right? We already looked at those things. Persevere, uh, walking in holiness, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, for who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, that you will not grow weary and lose heart. We can look to Jesus, what he has done, what he has experienced, and we can know that God is doing the same thing for me. What happened with Jesus? Hardship, cross, followed by glory. What's happening in our lives? hardship cross followed by glory let's go to the lord in prayer our father we are thankful for these great promises that we have this glory that we can anticipate though we recognize we're so far short of it we are so far away from it it feels like things are moving in slow motion and yet we know that it is here we know that it is coming we know that it belongs to us and we know that the present sufferings, the present difficulties and trials that we face in this life, those are going to be nothing compared to what we will experience at your coming. I pray that if there are those in here who cannot yet claim hold of that, who have not yet believed, that they would believe on your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that they would know that these promises can belong to them, that they would be found by you at the coming of the Lord Jesus. I pray that you bless the rest of our day and our uh, and week. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.